Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah's path to statehood was the most torturous in U.S. history, due in no small part to the Mormon uh, practice of polygamy. Frank J. Cannon, newspaper man, congressional delegate, and senator, guided Utah toward becoming the 45th state in the Union in 1896. When he lost favor with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, his contributions fell into obscurity. Val Hawley has written a new biography titled Frank J. Cannon, Saint, Senator, Scoundrel. Historian Will Bagley says this biography of one of the most controversial men ever to be born in Utah is worth the wait. Cannon's role in ending the political warfare over polygamy is what made him matter in Utah's history. His scandalous conduct and how he got away with it is what makes him interesting. Val Hawley is an independent historian living in New York City, and his 25th Street Confidential drama, Decadence and Dissipation along Ogden's Rowdiest Road won the Utah Book Award in nonfiction. Val Hawley, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Uh, so we talked several years ago about 25th Street uh, Confidential, wonderful book. Um, now with this one, so glad to have you back on the program. Um, you write in the book that, uh, maybe you could tell me how you uh, came to write a biography of Frank J. Cannon. I think it's a connection, your connection, and his connection with Ogden Weber uh, uh, County. That's correct. Uh, Frank J. Cannon uh, is now largely forgotten in Utah, but in his day, largely because of his career as an anti-Mormon lecturer, between 1911 and the beginning of World War I in 1918, made him quite despised in much of Utah. And so uh, <clears throat> what he did before that, the immense contributions he made to Utah's path to statehood and helping Utah become a state are quite forgotten. And it seemed to me that it was a gap in Utah annals that needed to be told finally. One reviewer of your new book says uh, Frank J. Cannon may be the most important Utah in history that most Utahns don't know. Do you agree with that? I agree. I agree. There were so many things he did to help Utah get statehood. Uh, in fact, he had quite a record of diplomatic triumphs uh, along that path of statehood. The stumbling block, as I'm sure most of the listeners know, was polygamy. After Congress enacted the Edmonds Act in 1882, which was to crack down on polygamy in Utah, there were delegations of prominent Mormons and highly paid lobbyists who went to Washington to plead for relief from the harsh sentences that were being imposed on polygamists. But Congress was unimpressed, and their response was to pass the, uh, the even harsher Edmonds-Tucker Act of 1887. Now, that act... Uh, withdrew the franchise from all Utah women, and it forced men to swear a monogamous oath in order to vote. Uh, George Q. Cannon of the Mormon First Presidency, and that was Frank's father, uh, who had five wives and also had been hiding from federal marshals for nearly three years, realized the church was facing destruction. And because his lobbyists hadn't succeeded in getting relief, uh, George Q. Cannon asked his son Frank to go to Washington in search of relief. Uh, now, Frank would have struck many Mormons as quite an improbable deliverer, because he had always been a religious skeptic, and he uh, was not uh, a, a true believer by any means. He drank a lot in his youth, and he fathered an illegitimate child. 
At this time, when his father asked him to go to Washington, he was 29 years old. And even though he was editor of the Ogden Standard, he really wasn't known outside of Utah. But still, there was something quite mysterious here. His father sensed that he might be the right person to go to Washington to break the logjam. And what Frank realized was that the, um, the, the key to solving this impasse was going to be an overhaul of Utah's judiciary. So he formulated a plan to persuade President Grover Cleveland to replace Utah's territorial Supreme Court justice, and that was Charles Zane. Zane was a hanging judge who had famously said that the law would grind the church to powder. Now, if they could get a more merciful chief justice who would seek only to secure obedience to the law and not try to exterminate the church, uh, this would be the solution, Frank thought. So through a well-planned search, he identified and vetted Judge Elliot Sanford of New York and then persuaded Grover Cleveland to appoint Sanford in Zane's place in Utah. So once Sanford was on the bench, George Q. Cannon came out of hiding and pled guilty to unlawful cohabitation. This uh, set an example for dozens, scores of other uh, polygamous Mormon men on the lam. That was rather a long answer. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's good. Uh, let's back up just a bit. Uh, tell me a bit about George sure. Q. Cannon. Uh, this is the father, and uh, very influential yes. in his time. Uh, uh, you know, one, I, I don't know if you say this in the book, but uh, others have said he'd, he might have been the second most influential man in Utah in, 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 the, uh, in the church. Um, that's absolutely that's right. Historians agree, and uh, I, I think at the time both Mormons and Gentiles would have agreed that after Brigham Young, George Q. Cannon was the most uh, influential person in Mormon affairs. That would have been, I guess, in the entire latter half of the 19th century. Uh, George Q. Cannon was an Englishman, born in Liverpool, uh, joined the church with his family as a teenager, came across the ocean, lived in Nauvoo, Illinois, was, one, uh, was in the Salt Lake Valley in the first vanguard of pioneers, had gone on a mission to Hawaii, was very successful in converting Hawaiian natives, became a Mormon apostle in his 30s, and his wisdom was highly valued, and he was a counselor to four uh, Mormon presidents. That would be Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, and Lorenzo Snow. Uh, so, as you mentioned, uh, George Buchanan, as with many of the men uh, at this time in the, in, the, uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, was polygamous, had several wives, many children, um, and uh, successful businessmen as well as uh, churchmen. Um, so, Frank Cannon, um, you you say that um, he was not a believer necessarily. You, you have an interesting anecdote in the book where apparently uh, Frank Cannon would— uh, Make a test for God, I suppose. He'd he put some sticks in the ground, and he'd he'd say if the if the uh, the, the prophets uh, here are are uh, not uh, called by you, God, uh, have the sticks fall. Right? Is that did I get that right? That's exactly what he said. This was in his autobiography called "Under the Prophet in Utah," and the thing about this is he was only six years old when he was having this uh, internal debate, and he 
Uh, and also he reported that sometimes the sticks would fall and sometimes they would stay standing. So that was rather inconclusive. But uh, <clears throat> he, uh, I suppose it was because he left home in uh, uh, when he was about 13. This would have been um, <clears throat> 1873 to go to Ogden to work as a deputy clerk in the recorder's office. And I imagine the influences he... Uh, or the companions he chose in Ogden uh, got him to start drinking and become rather a heavy drinker. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, he was always... Now, he never was hostile to the Mormon people in those days. He considered himself a Mormon, and he 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 liked, was very fond of his fellow Mormons, but he he never really believed it. And never really was uh, devout. He he paid tithing. That was the thing. In, in spite of everything, he paid tithing. So obviously, he had a uh, a feeling of solidarity. What do you think that uh, obviously the influence of the father is going to have an effect, right? Uh, so you're you're not a believer. Your father is a fervent believer. Um, I guess so. Maybe that you're going to try. Um, but I, you know, you're. But go ahead. Yes, yes. Uh, see, this Frank wasn't actually the only one of his brothers to uh, to deviate from uh, devout Mormonism. His older brother, John Quail Cannon, actually his half-brother, <clears throat> also uh, drank from time to time and uh, at one point committed adultery, embezzled funds, I think from the Church, uh, <clears throat> and... Uh, I can't help but wonder if George Q. Cannon's strictness, uh, and possibly also his absenteeism, because he was Utah's delegate to Congress and was often away, might have uh, caused a reaction the other way among these uh, these sons of his. Hmm. You uh, you tell about um, Frank J. Cannon's alcoholism. Could we consider him an alcoholic? A heavy drinker, anyway, right? Um, and in scenes, his, I guess, brothers would go to the red light district to, to, to find him occasionally. Yes, yes, they would look for him, uh, and, and once in a while, even his father would be looking for him in uh, on the Salt Lake streets and even in Ogden. He would sometimes uh, <laughs> be so far ahead of them that they didn't know where he was. At times he got down as far as Provo and Logan, but they were always... Uh, on the streets, and they made quite good friends with a lot of the police force, who could often tell them where they could find Frank. Hmm. Uh, this is skipping ahead a bit, but um, yes. you you have a chapter where you use the word Oedipal. Uh, the Oedipal Senate race, the, the father and son were vying for each other, I guess. Yes, now this is fascinating, because uh, in my research, I looked into other instances in which... Uh, <clears throat> fathers and sons, or fathers and daughters, might have opposed each other for the same Senate seat, and I couldn't find a single instance in U.S. history where this happened. Uh, what we're talking about is the <clears throat> election to fill Utah's first two Senate seats after it became a state, the statehood came on January 4, 1896. It's important to remember that in those days, senators were elected not by the people, by the state legislatures. So uh, Utah chose its first state legislature, 
And uh, as, as there was a lot of speculation on who these senators might be, uh, a lot of indications point Frank's support in the Republic, local Republican Party and the fact that he was already the delegate to Congress suggested that he would be the senator, and yet the speculation was all about his father, George Q. Cannon, and not him. So uh, we've had, in the Senate, we've had many family dynasties. Utah, of course, had Senator Wallace Bennett, uh, and later we had his son Robert Bennett in the Senate. Uh, other examples would be Henry Cabot Lodge Sr. and Jr., from Massachusetts, we've had uh, family dynasties in the Senate, but never before have we had a. Uh, uh, never again should I say we've never had a father and son oppose each other for the Senate. Now George Q. Cannon refused to campaign. He he felt that would be unseemly. Uh, now he wanted the Senate. He although he said he didn't want it. Uh, everyone saw through that. They realized he did want it. His sons believed that he really wanted it. But George Q. Cannon refused to campaign. He simply believed that if God really wanted him to have that Senate seat, God would clear the way for it to happen. And uh, he wasn't far off the mark because uh, <clears throat> the president of the church, who was Wilford Woodruff, appointed a committee to see if the state legislators actually would support George Q. Cannon for that Senate seat. But because of pledges which they had made to Frank, and which Frank had made to them, that he would stay in the race no matter who else opposed him, it seems the legislators were afraid to face their constituents <clears throat> about breaking their pledges to the party. So at the last minute, George Q. Cannon issued a statement of non-candidacy that really left Frank as the only candidate in the race for, oh, actually, here I should say, at statehood, there was a political truce that one seat would be Mormon and one would be Gentile. <clears throat> so when I say Frank was the only one left standing, that was for the Mormon seat. And he was, he, he was unanimously elected by the Republicans' majority of the state legislature. The other Senate seat went to a man who is even more obscure in Utah history now. His name was Arthur Brown a native of Michigan who was a uh, prominent Salt Lake attorney. Hmm. So Frank and Brown were the first two senators from Utah. Yeah. Um, let's take a break uh, right now. We'll uh, come back more in this fascinating history. Frank J. Cannon, Saint Senator Scoundrel, the author of Val Holly, is with us. And we'll have more following this break. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Cache Valley Visitors Bureau with a reminder that your mother might clean up after you, but Mother Nature won't. Please be respectful of others by picking up human waste and garbage and keeping the trails clean for everyone. 
Support also comes from the Cash Grand Fondo Bike Ride, celebrating the 10th annual bike ride Saturday, July 10th. Ranked the number six Grand Fondo event in the USA, with 35, 50, 70, and 105 mile routes. More information available at cashgrandfondo.com. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about a, a figure who's now relatively unknown in Utah history, a very important figure in Utah history, nonetheless, Frank J. Cannon. Subtitle of the new biography from Val Holly is Saint Senator Scoundrel. Frank J. Cannon is a fascinating, fascinating figure in Utah history. We're uh, treating him on uh, the program today. <clears throat> um, so, uh, Val Holly. I want to loop back just a little bit, talk about this uh, struggle for statehood and uh, a little bit more about Frank J. Cannon's pivotal role in this. Um, I want to talk first, have you talk about uh, Frank J. Cannon's uh, attitude toward polygamy. I believe he opposed polygamy, but I think not necessarily because it was one of the twin relics of barbarism. What was, what was his view of polygamy? It's very difficult to know what he really thought of polygamy. <clears throat> when he was an anti-Mormon lecturer in the years leading up to World War I, he wrote accounts of how he, his attitude towards polygamy had been shaped uh, from childhood and that he was always against it. But he may have been uh, tailoring those articles uh, to the fact that he was going around the country lecturing against polygamy. What he said later in life and we don't have any account that differs from this or, or contradicts it, is that when he was a child and his mother would host quilting parties, he and the other small children would play underneath the quilting frame while the women above were talking about, uh, well, frankly, gossiping about affairs of the, uh, of the Mormon Church, and they would often uh, discuss what polygamous women actually thought of having uh, other, being one of multiple wives. Uh, in, in particular, Frank said one remark that his mother made stuck with him, and it was uh, a woman that he fictitiously called Emmeline had said uh, she didn't really, it wasn't that, uh, it wasn't that her husband had a second wife, it was that the second wife was her own sister, and she said, it's a sin against husband to hate your own sister. And Frank said, now that is what polygamy actually meant to a Mormon woman. And he said that that statement stayed with him for years, and he also felt that uh, his own mother's uh, suffering, shall we say, under polygamy, now she herself did not complain. So whatever he sense that was going on with her was his own opinion. But he claimed later in life that he was always against polygamy, and he said that when he was married to his wife, and incidentally, the person who sealed uh, Frank to his wife, Martha Cannon, uh, Martha Brown Cannon, was his father, George Q. Cannon, but he never admitted that in what he wrote. He said, when the priest when the priest sealed us, he told me that I should uh, take other wives, and he said he was horrified at that moment, and that immediately after the wedding ceremony, he promised his new wife that he would never take another one. 
at least these are the things he said late in life, and it's hard to know if he was really telling the truth about what he thought of polygamy as a young man. What uh, what animated him in this work, uh, do you think? Was it uh, statehood? Was that the biggest goal? Was it helping out his, his father and then the church? What do you think animated him? Oh, he certainly wanted to help Utah become a state. Uh, for personal reasons, first of all, because uh, people who are citizens only of a territory can't vote for president. They don't have representation in the Senate, and he felt that he would not really have the full-fledged benefits of being an American citizen until he could do all those things and be the citizen of a state. He also saw that, uh, oh, and and this is is especially important, as a territory, uh, Utah was governed in large part not by its own laws, its own territorial legislature, although they could pass laws, but they were subject to whatever laws Congress passed and the sanctions that Congress imposed on them. And by the late 1880s, Congress had enacted several anti-polygamy statutes, which were onerous on polygamists in Utah and made life very miserable for them. Frank knew that with statehood, that uh, Utah would be able to control its own destiny. So that certainly animated his wish to help Utah become a state. And as you as you mentioned, we told uh, earlier he was he was instrumental in this, and that that's uh, forgotten. Um, I, I think at least in part because of a falling out. We'll get to a little bit later here with the with the yes. LDS Church. Um, so tell us about his time as senator. He he became the first U.S. senator from Utah shortly after statement. Yes, he did. Uh, <clears throat> now, Utah senators over the years have tended to have long sojourns in the Senate. The average length of time for senators from Utah has been three terms, or 18 years. Reed Smoot was in for 30 years, or five terms, and the great record holder, of course, is Orrin Hatch, who had seven terms. Frank was only in the Senate three years. Other than Arthur Brown, Frank was the shortest-serving senator from Utah. Uh, He... uh, the thing that really, uh, the issue that really made the difference in his Senate career was free silver. This is something that is not talked about uh, anymore, and a lot of people don't know what it is. I didn't know what it was when I started working on the book. But the Coinage Act of 1873 had made the gold standard official, and it ended the right of citizens to have silver bullion struck into dollar coins free of charge. And by the 1890s, uh, falling prices and bank foreclosures had radicalized farmers west of the Mississippi. They blamed the gold standard for chronic indebtedness because it raised the cost of credit. So free silver was a rallying cry for uh, most farmers in the western part of the country. And at the Republican National Convention of 1896, There came a break in the Republican Party because although the party had previously favored bimetallism, which is the recognition of both gold and silver as mediums of currency, in 1896, the Republican Party platform solidly adopted the gold standard and ignored silver. 
And this caused Frank and several Western senators to walk out of the convention. Nominally, they were still Republicans, but uh, they formed their own party called the Silver Republicans. <clears throat> and by alienating himself from the Republican Party, this is one of the uh, principal reasons that Frank only lasted three years in the Senate, because he was really without the strength and organization and mechanism of a party behind him. Um, uh, t- tell me about the tariffs. Uh, of course, Senator Smoot uh, famously had his name on a on a tariff, right? Smoot-Hawley uh, Act. Uh, apparently, uh, Frank J. Cannon, I think, voted in favor of a tariff, which would have perhaps affected Utah's sugar economy. What happened was actually the opposite. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> it was called the Dingley Tariff Act of 1897. Nelson Dingley of Maine was the chairman of the House Wayne's Means Committee, which was in charge of revenue. Uh, <clears throat> Frank opposed this because even even though there were uh, the Utah producers favored the tariffs, which would have been to their advantage on wool and lead. Frank opposed these because he said they were really done to benefit corporations rather than individual producers and farmers. And furthermore, since the party would not do anything for free silver, which would have lowered the cost of credit for farmers, Frank maintained all along that uh, that this was free silver was the reason that Utah sent him to the Senate. And so he voted his conscience when he, against the uh, <clears throat> Dingley Tariff Act of 1897, he was the only senator with Republican attached to his name to do so. And it brought howls of condemnation all through Utah. The main newspapers of Ogden, Salt Lake, and Provo called on him to resign. Uh, yes, so this was the, this was really what uh, killed his Senate career. Uh, his father, George Q. Cannon, dies, I think it's 1901. Um, yes. And uh, I think after that, uh, the, the divide between Frank J. Cannon and the and the church just deepens, right? And the final break, what, 1905 or something? 1905 was the final break. After George Q. Cannon died in 1901, uh, the effect of his death seemed to humble Frank for a time, and he lived more like a Mormon than at any other time in his life. He donated the bulk of funds for a new conference center for the Church's British mission. He wrote articles uh, praising Joseph F. Smith's ascension to the presidency of the Church. He, uh, at the time, was back in Washington, D.C. as uh, a lobbyist, and there was no Mormon congregation in Washington at the time, so he opened his home on weekends for Sunday school. However, that didn't last. He disagreed with uh, the policies of Joseph F. Smith, because at that point the Church was making alliance with corporations and trusts, and it had secretly resumed polygamy. And Frank had given his personal pledges to senators and the Secretary of State earlier, saying that uh, the Church would renounce polygamy in exchange for statehood. So Frank was quite offended that those pledges had been broken. So 
he became editor of the Salt Lake Tribune and wrote vitriolic editorials <clears throat> condemning these practices of the Church and of Joseph F. Smith, and understandably, they excommunicated him for it. This was 1905. I think to the point where uh, when uh, I, you you quote uh, Joseph F. Smith, who's leader of the church at the, at the point, he says we we don't uh, we don't talk about Frank J. Cannon, right? We we don't dignify him with a response. That's correct, and that turned into a <clears throat> a basic amnesia. That is why Frank Cannon isn't remembered for the good things that he did to help Utah, not only to help Utah achieve statehood but to help out the Mormon Church in its fiscal crisis of the uh, 1890s. Uh, Heber J. Grant and George Q. Cannon and high-ranking Mormons had gone back east to try and arrange financing and loans for the Church, but were largely unsuccessful. But Frank, by virtue of his own talent, capacity to meet people, charm people, uh, brought two different financiers into the picture that made quite a difference in stabilizing church finances in the 1890s. They were George Purbeck of New York, and second, Joseph Bannigan, who was known as the Rubber King of Rhode Island. Joseph Bannigan's investment stabilized the Pioneer Electric Power Company, in which the church had a substantial majority interest, and the Utah Sugar Company. Um, I want to uh, talk about maybe further the narrative here. So uh, after he's you know voted out of the Senate, uh, this final estrangement from the Church. Uh, wh- what does he go on to do uh, next? What were what were his interests? What were his efforts? Well, his initial ventures after the uh, after he left the Senate were involved in making himself rich, and for a time, it seemed like it was working. He first became involved in gold mining ventures in uh, in Utah and interesting investors in the East to uh, purchase shares of Utah mines, and then he became uh, a facilitator for various inventions that turned out to be unsuccessful. One was called a vapor light, and the other was called was known as liquid air, which was touted as an alternative to fossil fuels. They didn't come to anything. Uh, and then uh, then he, he got back into journalism. He After he left the Salt Lake Tribune, he was absent. No, no, excuse me. After he left uh, editing the Ogden paper, he was absent from journal, journalism for another decade. The reason he got back into it is that Senator Reed Smoot had been elected senator from Utah, and he began his service in 1903. And Frank saw this as a—Frank wasn't alone in this. Uh, There were large numbers of Americans who saw this as violating the separation of church and state, and they were vehemently opposed to uh, Smoot's election. And to oppose this from uh, his Utah base, Frank founded a newspaper called the uh, Daily Utah State Journal. And so he got back into journalism at this point. And 
and did so for about four years, uh, and we, we already talked about him being excommunicated for what he wrote in the Salt Lake Tribune. By the time this all played out and that Smoot was safely voted into the, uh, well, the Senate voted to retain him in the Senate, by the time this was all over, Frank realized that he had no future at all in Utah. So he moved to Colorado, where he began editing newspapers then. If you just joined us, we are talking with Val Hawley, author most recently of Frank J. Cannon, Saint, Senator, Scoundrel, an important and now somewhat obscure figure in Utah history. Uh, Val Hawley is an independent historian, lives in New York City, and his 25th Street Confidential won the Utah Book Award in nonfiction. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the the Colorado years. Uh, More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, relaunching the Utah Women and Leadership podcast series. Information and episodes are available at utwomen.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll introduce some music from parts of the world you don't hear much about, like Suriname, Burkina Faso, and New Caledonia. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Where in the World, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is writer Val Hawley. He's an independent historian. We've uh, reached him in New York, where he lives. And the new book is Frank J. Cannon, Saint, Senator, Scoundrel. Val Hawley, before we get to those final Colorado years, um, curious to learn a little bit more about his personal life. He he did he he married sisters, uh, but this was sequential. This was not polygamous. Uh, tell That's us a little correct. bit more it was about sequential. this. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about those sisters, his, his wives. Oh, they were from a prominent Ogden family, uh, the Browns. Uh, and <clears throat> Martha Cannon, the first wife, died at the age of 50 from floral pneumonia. This was 1908. And the next year, right after Frank moved to Colorado, he married Martha's much younger sister, May who was in her 30s and uh, had never had the opportunity to marry. Uh, we know very little about their courtship because no one's, no one said anything about it or nothing about it has been preserved. But yes, he did marry his first wife's younger sister. And this was in 1909, and he had just moved to Colorado. And the uh, Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court officiated. So you can see that Frank received, was welcomed with open arms in Colorado. I would say they rolled out the red carpet to him. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, we've talked earlier in the hour about uh, Frank J. Cannon's heavy drinking, his 
brothers that find him in the red light district, etc. Did did he was he able to settle down? Was he able to overcome that a bit later in life, or what what happened? There? We don't know anything about it from Frank himself because he didn't write about it, and uh, I've I found nobody who wrote about it. But what we do know is that when he went to New York in 1911 to discuss a uh, magazine series that he wanted to write, the editor of the magazine took him around to several New York clubs so he could speak. And we know from that editor that he tried... uh, Actually, the quote was from a mutual friend, the editor couldn't get Frank to drink a drop while he was in New York. So it seems that he may have uh, found the means to reform. Mm-hmm. So you say he was, uh, indications are he was welcomed in Colorado with open arms. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about his life in Colorado. It was interesting. He, uh, I, We don't know why he chose Colorado. I suspect it was because Denver reminded him of uh, the Utah climate, which he knew and loved. But he uh, made contact with Thomas Patterson, a former senator who owned two newspapers in Colorado. And Patterson immediately hired him. Well, they, they were already friends, I should say. But Patterson hired him to be editorial writer on the Denver Times, a position which he held for a year. And then Patterson sold the Denver Times. He still owned the chief newspaper in Colorado, which was the Rocky Mountain News. And Frank became chief editorial writer for that and then managing editor, which is uh, quite a plum. His editorials from those years are masterful. They're beautifully written. They're persuasively written. And you see, you just have to be awestruck by his skill as a persuasive writer. What, what are his concerns? What are the editorials about? Often they are about Western issues, uh, irrigation, uh, conservation. They're also, uh, he, he never lost an opportunity to condemn uh, <clears throat> trusts and monopolies. And that allowed him to take pot shots at some of his former enemies in the Senate and also at Senator Smoot, who always voted in concert with them. Um, so he lived till, I think, died in 1933. That's correct. Which is, you know, later than I would, you know, I associate him with statehood and with, uh, you know, polygamy and, and such, fight against polygamy and such. 1933, so, and he he had transitioned, I think, by the end of his life to the Democratic Party. Yes, in fact, the Democratic transition happened uh, officially in 1900. Remember, in, 19, in 1896, he had been elected as a Republican, to the Senate, but within a year he was a silver Republican. When he ran for re-election, or when he was up for re-election in the state legislature in 1899, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans, other than those from his home base of Weber County, would support him. So there was, and the Democrats were after him to uh, to come over to their side, which they figured he would because their candidate, William Jennings Bryan, in 1896 and 1900 was a free silver champion, and that was perfectly in line with Frank's thinking. And uh, so he made the switch to the Democratic Party, and they installed him immediately as state party chairman, an office which he held for four years. He wrote a couple of books, right? We, we think he was involved in a book. Um, well, tell us about the books that, it, that he wrote. He's most famous for Under the Prophet in Utah, which is uh, an autobiography of sorts. 
it uh, it explain it, it tells how he uh, was selected by his father to go to Washington to help uh, relieve to, to get a new judiciary for Utah to relieve the burden on polygamists. Talks about his political career, how he became delegate to Congress from Utah, then senator. And then it talks about his break with the Church and why he opposed the alliances with trust and the resumption of polygamy. Uh, When he first got to Colorado, he became very good friends with a world-renowned juvenile court judge there named Ben Lindsay. Ben Lindsay was an innovator in juvenile court justice and was, uh, was very famous not just in the U.S., but around the world and was a star on the lecture circuit. Ben Lindsay was working with a professional magazine writer named Harvey O'Higgins on a serialized uh, expose of corrupt Colorado politics called The Beast in the Jungle. And this was being completed just as Frank moved to Colorado, and Frank met Harvey O'Higgins right away, and when Harvey O'Higgins talked to Frank, he realized that his story of politics in Utah, especially vis-a-vis the Mormon Church, was very similar to what he just worked on in Colorado, the beast in the jungle. And he realized that could give him at least another year of highly paid magazine work. So the two of them began collaborating on Under the Prophet in Utah, which first appeared as a magazine serial over a course of eight months in everybody's magazine one of the chief muckraking magazines of the day. And after the serialization, it became the book Under the Prophet in Utah. You asked about the other book. That was Brigham Young and his Mormon Empire. Now, that's one of the things we know very little about. We don't know who suggested it, uh, what the impetus for writing it was, but uh, Frank's co-author on that was George L. Knapp, who was a co-editor in the Rocky Mountain News. Um. Frank J. Cannon, by all accounts, was uh, silver-tongued, right? Um, people would come yes, to, to, to hear him. Uh, he, uh, at a certain point, I, I don't know, more than one, but he went on tours, speaking tours, I think. Yes, he did. Uh, <clears throat> the lecture tours came about because of the success in everybody's magazine of Under the Prophet in Utah. And Judge Lindsay, who I just mentioned, who is already a star of the Red Path Lyceum Bureau, which is a lecture-organizing company based in Chicago, told them, you need to get this Senator Cannon. He is so good. You you will thank me forever if you do. Quick, get him before any other lecture circuit tries to get him. And so the Red Path Lyceum Bureau sent Frank on uh, what were essentially anti-Mormon lecture tours for three years, and then he uh, stepped it up with an even more, uh, shall I say, powerful organization, the National Reform Association of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which, uh, which flat out declared an anti-Mormon crusade and had Frank speaking in mass meetings across the country. Um, I understand that even... I guess till his dying days, he was uh, still a passionate uh, supporter of silver. He was. He was the chairman of the International Silver Commission, which is a group of uh, silver mine owners of Utah and Colorado. And he often wrote 
he must have had a certain amount of credibility because during those uh, years, especially of the Great Depression, the early 30s, the New York Times often published articles with him, and he uh, actually got an audience with President Herbert, Herbert Hoover to explain why the U.S. needed to shore up China's economy with silver and later Germany's. So regardless of how sound this was, he was considered an authority and uh, and uh, credible enough to be published in the New York Times and the Associated Press. I want to uh, read just this paragraph from the book. Um, I'll just read this. Frank Cannon's entire life was premised on ironies. While the Edmonds Act brought untold grief to the Mormon people, the fraught environment in Utah was essential to Frank's rise. He anticipated that the lodestone of Utah statehood, once attained, would convey the highest dignity of human privilege. Yet statehood, which ended Utah's estrangement from the nation, marked the beginning of Frank's alienation, despite his being a U.S. senator from the Mormon Church. And his later public career and popularity in Denver, Colorado, demonstrate the advantages he might have uh, have uh, given Utah if it had permitted him to rise in Senate seniority. That's interesting. The, these ironies. Yes, I. I although the uh, anti polygamy statutes of the 1880s did cause a lot of grief and sorrow in Utah, they were, in my opinion, absolutely essential for the rise of Frank Cannon. Uh, because they had the effect of the effect of diluting <clears throat> the Mormon vote. At the same time, uh, non-Mormons were moving into Utah then at a at a at a great rate because they perceived economic in, uh, opportunities, whether for mining or other resources. And so, for a brief time in the early 1890s, you actually had parity between Mormon and Gentile political interests in Utah. And what you needed to be elected at that time, and it was only a brief time, was somebody who could appeal to both sides. And Frank was the perfect hybrid. So this is why the fraught political environment was essential to his rise. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, statehood, which he, which he fervently wanted and achieved, right, helped achieve, um, marked the beginning of his alienation and, uh, I guess, occasioned his move to Colorado. Um, I wonder, um, is there, I guess there are probably many things, uh, that we have not mentioned that are in the book. Uh, is there one that uh, you'd, you'd especially like to mention here? We, we, we're nearing the end of the program. I think it's significant that as a senator, he conducted a fact-finding tour to the Far East. Uh, he and two other Republican silver senators from South Dakota and Idaho traveled in the summer of 1897 to Japan to study its newly declared gold standard and China, which was on the silver standard. And, uh, of course, it was mainly politically motivated. They did it because they wanted to shore up their own fledgling party, the Silver Republican Party. It didn't have that effect, but it was a very interesting uh, uh, exposure to world conditions for Frank Cannon, and after he was back, he went on a lecture tour throughout Utah. Many of the lectures were for the benefits of local libraries. Uh, I should also mention that Hawaii held a special interest for Frank because of his father's missionary service there. I suppose that 
was <clears throat> quite a sent uh, had a lot of sentimentality for the Cannon family. On the way back from the Far East, Frank stopped in Hawaii because it was right at the time when the U.S. was considering annexing Hawaii, and he had the most interesting perspective because he had just been in Japan. And he had seen, and he wouldn't have believed it unless he had seen it, that Japan actually had designs on Honolulu and the Hawaiian Islands. It's amazing how prescient the things he said 44 years before Pearl Harbor were. But he said, you, you need to pay attention to Japan. They want Hawaii. They want Honolulu. And they were very disconcerted when they saw that I was in favor of annexation. And, of course, in 1899, he voted with the majority of senators to annex Hawaii. Yeah, the, the fascinating, fascinating history. Um, you quote Lin-Manuel Miranda in the introduction to the book. Um, so uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, speaking of Alexander Hamilton, says... At the next four presidents, uh, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and John Quincy Adams all hated Hamilton and did their best to, not even to assassinate his character, but to uh, bury him by omission. And this is essentially what happened to Frank J. Cannon. Uh, so here we just have about three minutes left in the program, Val Hawley. Uh, this book, I'm sure, uh, your hope, uh, brings Frank J. Cannon a little more out of obscurity. Uh, tell us again that at the end of the program, we began this way, uh, why you think Frank J. Cannon deserves to, to, to be brought out of obscurity. I think it's because of his record of diplomatic triumphs along Utah's path to statehood. He, uh, first of all, almost single-handedly uh, brought about the overhaul of Utah's judiciary, which got judges who would treat convicted polygamists more mercifully than they had been treated before. And what this did was allow George Q. Cannon to come out of hiding and plead guilty and uh, only serve a short sentence, a mild sentence, and his example allowed other Mormon men in hiding to do the same. So this broke quite a logjam. In 1890, he testified persuasive. Uh, by 1890, when the Congress saw that the Church had still not given up polygamy, there were some very uh, onerous bills introduced in the House and the Senate, the Cullum and Struble bills, which would just simply have been disfranchised every Mormon. And he testified persuasively against them in Congress and persuaded the Secretary of State to agree not to push them forward if the Church would acknowledge and accept the law. And four months later, you got Wilford Woodruff's manifesto. Also, another stumbling block to statehood was church control of politics in Utah. You had the Mormon People's Party and the Gentiles Liberal Party, and these needed to fall for statehood to rise. So Frank uh, was a founder of the Republican Party in Utah. He persuaded the First Presidency not to oppose the dissolution of the Mormon People's Party, and his presence in the new Republican Party served as a ballast to persuade Gentiles that the Mormons were serious. It wasn't just ruse, but they were serious about aligning with national parties. These are all accomplishments <clears throat> and achievements of Frank Cannon on the way to statehood. Well, the book is Frank J. Cannon, Saint Senator Scoundrel. The author is Val Hawley. He's an independent historian, lives in New York City. Val Hawley, you, uh, you working on something now? 
Yes, I am. I'm uh, looking into writing a history, a social history of New York City. Well, so be... my next book will probably not be about Utah. Yeah, well, that'll be interesting. We'll look forward to that one as well. I'll mention uh, 25th Street Confidential, a uh, great book. That won the Utah Book Award in nonfiction. That's also by Val Holly. Val Holly, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. There's a side of the South that should have died after the Civil War. Slavery was good and bad. It was good for the people that didn't know how to take care of themselves and they needed a job. These myths about slavery are being kept alive at Confederate sites and monuments thanks to taxpayers like you and me on the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org. Jasmine Mesa, one of the bilingual reporters at Utah Public Radio. This year we have been working on increasing the diversity of voices you hear on UPR, and that is where I come in. I produce news stories in Spanish each week, and right now I've been reporting a lot of COVID-19. But as things continue to open up, I will be reporting on community events and other resources. Tune in on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. to listen to my stories in Spanish and visit upr.org to read them in English.